Hi, I'm Abby Mercado, an IVF mom, former VC investor, and CEO of Rescripted. Welcome to the Future of Fertility, a podcast dedicated to shining a light on the entrepreneurs and innovators who are changing the face of family building. With billions in funding over the past few years, we'll introduce you to the people, the ideas, and the businesses that are changing the fertility industry and in turn, millions of people's lives. The future of fertility is bright. Now let's get into it. Dr. Angie Beltzos is the CEO, clinical, and medical director of KindBody, a full-service, modern, and accessible fertility clinic that doubles as a fertility benefits provider. Prior to KindBody, Dr. Beltzos was the founder, CEO, and medical director of Bios Fertility Institute, which merged with KindBody in February 2022 giving the combined company worth over a billion a new title, Unicorn. Besides having a shoe closet that dreams are made of, Dr. Beltzos is an electric personality who saw the future, built it, and exited it. It is now continuing to carry the patient care torch at one of the most innovative clinics in the world. We've heard a ton from the legacy Kind Body team and the public arena about how amazing Dr. Beltzos is, which is why I'm so excited to welcome Dr. Beltzos today. Andy, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be part of today's podcast. Awesome. Awesome. Well, start us out. Who is Angie? Where is she from? Where did she grow up? What was she like as a little girl? How did she get to where she is today? I was uh, born and raised in Michigan. And when I was getting ready to go to residency after going to Michigan State for med school, I was hoping to find a really great place to study and that was by the water because I get so much energy from the water. So I went coast to coast and ended up at Loyola by the Lake Michigan and then Washington University for my fellowship in St. Louis and came back to Chicago to really be a reproductive endocrinologist with my first job. And so I've stayed primarily in Chicago for work until Kind Body. And now with Kind Body, we are again coast to coast. So I am enjoying meeting and being part of the lives of all of the different communities that serve our patients. And so were, had you always wanted to be a physician? Was this something, you know, you woke up when you were five years old and you were like, I want to be a doctor? You know, that's a great question. When I was younger, I thought that Maybe something in the neurosciences might be of interest or an engineer for undergrad. So I started in ultimately in engineering. Then I switched to nursing, did a year abroad. And when I started and I thought, well, I'll go to get my undergrad a little bit more in healthcare, pre-med versus nursing, and then go to med school or an advanced practice degree. And I decided that the medical school would be a better fit for me. So I again pivoted from that and went pre-med. And when I was in the operating room during my third year of medical schools, during the clinical years, I walked by a door and it said IVF lab. And it was like, what? what? They make babies in there? Like, how cool is that? And I was obsessed even with that moment that what was happening in our field post Louise Brown in 78 and then the 80s where IVF started to seep into the United States. And then I thought, okay, this is something that is 
so amazing. I said, that's what I want to do in that moment. So I knew that OBGYN residency was going to be a killer. It was uh, (laughs) a lot of work. But when I was applying, I just, I said, wherever I go, whatever I do, my steps are to become an REI. So that was from my third year. And so everything I did was to try to get there. Is it well known that OBGYN residencies are killers? Oh my gosh, are they ever? <laughs> I didn't know that, but I'm glad I know that now. <laughs> yeah, oh my goodness. During the time that I trained, we still did 110 to 120 hour work weeks or oh work days. Gosh. So we did, we'd show up at 6 a.m. and then you'd work till 6 p.m. and then 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. you were on call every other night. And then when you woke up, it's woke up. When 6 a.m. hit, <laughs> another 12 hours. And it wow. was so intense. I and mean, 120 hour. I started my career in investment banking. I'm like, I had 100 hour work weeks, right? Like that was really intense. But 120? Like, I don't think so. Yeah, you're <laughs> insane. We would drive home after working 36 hours and you would just, I would have my purse and my coat on and I would get to my chair in my dining room and I would just fall asleep on the chair. Like it was not good, but be that as it may, they break you down and build you back up. So at that time, since then, the hours are restricted that people do training and then babies don't pick a time to show up. So whenever they come, then you just have to be there and all the other things happening in a busy hospital. Yeah, amazing. So you stayed the course, obviously, you became a reproductive endocrinologist, and you've had an illustrious career serving fertility patients. So I was interested to hear about your career kind of prior to the merger with Kind Body. Well, thank you for your kind words. And I do feel my career took some turns that a lot of people don't have that opportunity. One of the things was, as I came out of my fellowship, I joined a single practitioner and then joined a bigger group. And in the bigger group, one of the things that I was entrusted with was the management of the practice. And so being a managing partner and learning branding and marketing and P&L statements and financials and the implications of the economy on the industry was much different being in one of the busier practices in the country than going in and just being, let's say, an employee physician or being in a group, but not really having visibility to the world and other busy practices in the country and around the world. A second thing that happened to me that was really pivotal as I reflect today was when I was asked to run the Midwest Reproductive Symposium International. And what happened with that, someone came in from Faring and said, we'd like to do a meeting. Would you like to help us run it? And I was like, sure, why not? So they funded the meeting, but they were like, all right, who do you want to speak? How do you want this meeting to run? We're going to give you a meeting planner. And the meeting planner taught me how to run a meeting and structure it. But then all these superstars from thought leaders in the country They were like, well, you have to call everybody and invite them to speak. And I was like, I don't know who I'm calling. Some of them I knew. Some of them were like rock stars. Some of them were just people that were had done recent research. So I called them and I said, will you speak at my meeting? And they were like, sure. And I was like, you will? And I checked that one off. And I'm like, hi, would you like to speak at my meeting? Sure. And check that one off. And pretty soon 
I had met them one-on-one when they came to Chicago. We celebrated what we were doing and had private dinners and became these professional relationships became friendships. And the friendships became like, well, why don't you come and speak at our meeting? And why don't you come and do more? And so soon that second thing allowed me to see our field intimately with the people that were doing the research, not just reading their paper and talking to them and having them present and go over their slides, et cetera. So it really turned the stage of my career to not just be local, but to be with all of these people every year. And now this year in 2023, we'll celebrate our 21st anniversary of the MRSI. And again, that I think changed my career and how I practiced. Uh, I would, again, get to hear all the things that they were doing, all the grants they were applying for. So when you go back to your patient and you're like, hey, what's the deal with priming for to optimize stimulation? It wasn't just a paper. It was this whole conversation that we would have over months and years to optimize, I think, patient care and also to know what's coming down the pipeline. And the third thing was because of all that, I was invited to be with speakers, bureaus and invited to give lectures because I was inviting them. They invited me. And then we were in the United States and then Australia and then Europe and then China. And so pretty soon you're meeting the top doctors in Spain and the top doctors in Sydney, Australia. And you're like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. And then go into their clinic and see what they were doing and talk as people, talk as medical directors and talk as thought leaders. So those three elements, I think, changed, again, the trajectory and the essence of my career. That's amazing. It's, you know, I think about the fertility industry is still a young one, right? And it's kind of, I think what you describe is just that beauty and finding professional community in in such a young industry and how that is so important. And it's beyond MRSI. Like we were just talking before the podcast about PCRS and how that community is so important in this industry. And that's one of the things that I love about this industry. And it sounds like obviously you're very early on in in formulating what that community looks like. So that's amazing. And it's it's a good lesson for anyone who is kind of a a pioneer in an early industry. Mm -hmm. Um, So tell me the story of bio. So you're great. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. So what does BIOS mean? Why did you name your clinic this? Tell us all about BIOS. When I had decided to do BIOS fertility, I think one of the interesting things that happened was that I was going to redefine one of the important parts of who I was and what the company I worked for, the clinic I worked for, what it was going to look like. And instead of status quo in mid-2000s, like 2014, 2015, I decided that we could not stay the same. We would have people come and tell our practice, well, you know, the whole industry has one to 2% growth and, you know, everything's going to be the same. And I was like, no, it's not. This world is changing and we have to be part of that change. One of the things was that you could grow this industry. There were a lot more people to take care of. And someone had given me a book called Four Disciplines of Execution. And how do you create change in an organization? And change is innately difficult for humans. 
And it doesn't matter how old you are. Even babies don't like when their mama is not holding them because it's different. And we define change in a way, too, that can be, as I said, kind of a challenge to the to the surroundings, to your ways, how you what you like to drink in the morning. And so at that moment, I said, we're going to change what we do here and use that book to kind of get our growth to 20 to 25 percent. I had had a colleague that said, was also challenging me, said I had our practice grow 20 to 25%. And I was like, how in the world did you do that? And that was Michael Kettle in San Diego. And he said, it's the whole team, but you have to define the change. You have to give them goals and help them create a path by themselves to reach it. So our practice grew 20 to 25% in that year. And the second thing that happened with this was, that the status quo was not going to work for me and my group was comfortable where they were at. And so I decided to start my own practice and we started Vios Fertility. Vios is the Greek word for life. It is beyond just a heartbeat, which is what life is, but it's also your purpose. It implies that what you do, what you believe in, some of that mission-driven, purposeful living And so we named our clinic Vios, the word Vios, many people know in the Greek because it's the foundation for the word bio or biology. That's in Greek, the B is a V. So it's really biology. And um, that's the same thing, the study of life. So with that, we started our clinic and I did my last retrieval on a Sunday at my old practice and 12 hours later. We walked into our clinic in Wicker Park in Chicago and grew our practice from there. And it was with this incredible team that believed in what we were doing. That's amazing. Well, so you speak like a foremost leader in the fertility industry and you are, but you also refer back to your team quite a bit. So I'm interested to hear kind of who on your team and what about your team? Like who's been kind of a non-negotiable for you? who's followed you in this career and who's just really been a non-negotiable. There are so many people. Synergy is an interesting thing because one plus one equals three and it doesn't make mathematical sense. And we inspire each other, but there have been so many times, thank you for your kind words, that I've been given some credit for what has occurred, but the reality is they carried me. There were times that I was tired and they were like, no, this is the way we're going to do this. They threw me on their shoulders and said, let's go. And there were moments and gifts and lucky things that happened to us with our, for example, our IVF labs. IVF labs are really expensive to build. And I have found my way to stumble, quote unquote, stumble upon amazing facilities. So we got our... Chicago lab and they gave us the keys and people said, well, you should wait a few months to open the lab. And Fran Black and Abirsalia were like, no, we're doing it right now. So we're going to open and do something in here in two weeks. At the time, the lab had already been functioning as an IVF lab, but there I was at midnight on my hands and knees. We were scrubbing the floor and then pouring water in incubators at midnight. And I was like, is this how you do this? (laughs) And then we waited with bated breath as the pregnancy test from our first series came through. And (laughs) we were like, 
oh my gosh, please, like, please work with all that we were doing. And we have people like Roberta, our ultrasound tech and our phlebotomists and our office managers and Hannah Johnson is chief of staff and Greg Poulos is president and Alex Jones and her team doing the financials and just so many people. The list goes on and on. Emily Ehlers and Kelly Schaff, who are our nurse leaders. Ruhi Jelani is one of our docs and the whole doctor team and Amber Cooper and Julie Reed that believed in us before I started to work at Vios. I mean, it's an endless list, truly. And I hesitate to even name people because the whole podcast would be just me shouting (laughs) out. The list is too long. (laughs) And yet this would not have been anything without them. So big shout out to the entire team. And if I didn't mention anyone's names, it's because we have probably go on to your next question. <laughs> Perfect. Well, let's do that. So I would like to talk about the merger with Kind Body, of course. That's kind of the obvious elephant in the room. That's where you are now. And something that I think is really interesting about what happened with Kind Body and Bios, everything you see on the internet about the merger just really goes back to this mention of friendship with Gina Bartese, who is the founder of Kind Body. Tell us a little bit more about this. Why is it important? And then walk us through what happened. There were two things. One is how we deliver care is a little or a lot different than a lot of fertility clinics. From the first time that we sit down with a couple in more of a living room setting that flips the model on its head that the important person in the room is not the doctor. The important person is our patient. And we tried to be as the cliche goes, very patient-centric and thinking about what they need from what it looks like, what it sounds like, what it smells like, like all of the senses of that experience at the new patient visit to their testing treatment and then exiting with their pregnancy and how all that the bumps in the road are. So in that we shared a philosophy that was fundamentally different than where what I had seen in many other places, which again, patients first is number one. The second thing was democratizing fertility care and getting it so that we allow people that otherwise would not have had a chance to come and get care. How can we facilitate that? So the second part of Kind body is the benefits to employers that allow, if you have a job, so many people have a job but don't have the insurance to pay for fertility. And this was inherently focused on it. So, those two pieces of this puzzle made Kind Body this, as many people had asked, maybe we could work together. This particular relationship was built on that premise. I love that. So how did you and Gina leave each other? Was she, did she go to MRSI in 2000? Like, tell, look, tell, I want Gina to talk about my friendship a little bit. Gina and I met when she started at Fertility Authority mm-hmm. with her team there. And then when that transitioned to Progeny, that was where she and I had always a great friendship and an opportunity there. When she was thinking about another project like Kind Body, I was just starting all of this as well. So at the time when she brought up, hey, do you want to do this together way back when, we were just, again, 
starting our two babies simultaneously in essence. So we decided this probably wasn't the right time to bring our teams together. And then once she got her footprint and I got mine and we reconnected, she had some great conversations also with Greg Poulos and said, hey, why don't you reconsider all this? And so the three of us worked on blending these two families. Amazing. These two teams. congrats. Thank you. (laughs) Obviously, it's not new news now, but it feels like, you know, for me as a a young founder in the industry and earlier stage in my own business, it's endlessly inspiring. So there's two CEOs at KindBody. You are one of them. How do you split the role? Tactics. Let's talk about them. Great questions. It's a work in progress for all of us. We're trying to define everyone's role as the team evolves, as our priorities change, and we're working on bringing these two teams together. Having said that, I'm a CEO of the clinical side that happened in the clinic, and Ann Beth is the CEO of the corporates. So she does more of the business. Greg serves as president, and Gina is also leaning in and also doing the role of chairman and chairwoman of the board. Lots of leaders working together, figuring out who does what. And that is leadership, for sure. It takes a team. And so if it's singular, there's a lot of clarity there. But when you're a singular leader, it's a lot to do by yourself, especially at this scale. Something that I think we're talking a little bit about in the fertility space right now is just how some of your legacy bios physicians, they have some of the highest throughput of any doctors in the country. This is obviously somehow coming from the top, obviously. Like, how do they get it done? How are you all able to do that? How do you see so many patients and treat them with such care? Thank you for asking that. It's something that process helps with and prioritization and aligning philosophically on this, I describe it as sometimes as coaching a team, like a basketball team. Some of this, you have to figure out the plays and then practice those plays and make sure that when I throw the ball, someone there knows exactly what they're supposed to do and quickly, methodically, effectively, and kindly execute on those jobs. So it's this back and forth, almost like a relay race that When the patient is in your hands, you know exactly what to do. And then when you throw it back to me, I'm there to catch it effectively too. So process and practicing process is really important. It's funny, people, well, this makes me crazy. People say, well, I emailed you what to do or I gave you one thing. Well, if this was a basketball team and I emailed you how to do a free throw shot, that's great. And if you practiced it by yourself in the backyard all day Saturday, that's great. But there is some totally different when you keep practicing with your teammates. And you got to be very, very intentional, I feel, to make that effective. Otherwise, you're not effective. There's a lot of people touching these patients. You have to make sure everybody knows what they're doing at all times. That makes all the sense in the world. It's like a basketball team. And is there some role of technology in that? And how have you thought about that? There were three pillars I built of Iosan. Patient experience was one. Two was innovation which included the technology. And third was how incredibly important the team is. And I still believe those three things are the utmost priority. And using technology and being femtech and being thoughtful and innovative about the business, the science, and the medicine is pivotal. It is absolutely imperative that we do that in today's world. What would you say is the role 
of social media and patient education. You use social media a lot. Your docs use social media and you're experts at it. So of course, something that's really close to my heart at Rescripted. We think social media is a fantastic tool. I'm curious to hear maybe your early days using social media and kind of how it's developed. Well, in the shift, I would say it was a shift that occurred over the last few years that we went from being very sort of professionally minded and B2B and the D2C events and communication were always sort of handled on a very professional level and shifting to something that was much more personal and intimate where you do share things that normally you wouldn't share with your patient that happens inherently in social media. I mean, you're in your home, you might be with your children, you might be sharing some of your pains and sufferings of your own life and your own story, that there was an interesting study several years ago that said two-thirds of the people of our patients want to know something about you personally. And when they took that to the doctors, there was a doctor who was not married, didn't have kids, but loved dogs and didn't have a lot, was very uncomfortable sharing like personal stuff and said, well, let's talk about what you do on a Saturday. And it was like, well, I I walk my dogs. And they're like, all right, that's the story we're going to tell. And the popularity of that physician changed dramatically. And people want to know that when they're being so vulnerable and sharing their intimate story that they also can relate to this person. And so compassion and empathy, which are a little different, when you have some of that in your doctor, there is a trust that starts to happen even in the face of fear that you can rest some of that on that intangible. So the success rates on SARD are really great and the facility needs to be clean, but there's something about social media and telling people stories that people can hear has really been transformative for the fertility world. You said something that just like made my heart explode that, you know, as a fertility patient and you're a fertility patient yourself, which we'll talk about, but in the face of fear, having that trust in the face of fear, this is a fearful experience. You're thinking about your family. You're thinking about your future family. You're thinking about your existing family. How will that change? It is scary. It's fearful. And when somebody is such a deep part of your relationship and growing your family, you have that just embedded trust. And yes. what better way to get them, just show them that trust by letting them enter yourself and your family and your home and so I love how you described that and just the inherent understanding that this is a difficult thing for, for the people that you say. So do you still see patients? Yes. Yes. Okay. Great. So, tell, you know, I just said you've had a fertility journey of your own. Feel free to tell us about that if you'd like. What I'm really curious to know is how has having your own fertility journey affected the way that you treat patients? So the story began when... We had had our three children and were pregnant with our fourth. Unfortunately, we lost Alina at around 23-ish weeks and she didn't make it. And at the time, we decided to try to pursue things. It didn't work with me carrying. So I decided we would put it aside for a little bit. We had done fertility treatment and 
miscarried again. And my husband said, well, if we're going to do this, we better do it. And you should probably use a gestational carrier. And I was like, what? And reproductive endocrinologist, I was like, oh, well, I hadn't really thought about that. (laughs) And I was like, that's interesting. And I was like, well, I think that's a good idea. So we found Miss Jody, and as we were walking back to do the transfer, I was the patient, and the doctor said, well, why don't you do the transfer? And I was like, oh my gosh, I hadn't even thought of that. So they handed me the catheter with Beatrice in it, and I put Beatrice in Miss Jody's womb, and out came Beatrice nine months later. For the listeners, my mouth is wide open. That is so amazing. How? (laughs) Oh my gosh. Amazing is that. Oh, I'm like, I want to cry. It <laughs> like, was I might. <laughs> so, honestly, it gives me chills. It was like a movie, like you didn't really do that. And I'm like, no, I really did. And it was so this dichotomy of being a mom and a woman and an intended parent and a reproductive endocrine doc and being able to do all of that in one gesture, one moment. So May 30th, she called, I still have the voicemail saved. I was playing it yesterday and it said, hi, Angie, I just wanted to let you know I got the beta HCG and it's positive. And I was like, oh my gosh. So it was cute. And so Beatrice was born with our gestational carrier in Savannah, Georgia, which is her middle name and Georgia, that is. And one day we have pictures of Miss Jody up and someone had come to visit an embryologist and said, why do you have a picture of the surrogate up in your house? I was like, why wouldn't I? I mean, this amazing, lovely couple and woman carried, brought life to my child. Like how amazing is that? So my advice to people is when a door closes and a window opens, open your heart and mind and just consider the possibilities. Because We have the ability today in medicine to guarantee a baby might need an egg donor or a sperm donor or uterine donor, so to speak. But there are many ways to get to parenting. And maybe it's an embryo adoption or maybe it's an adoption. But if you want to be a parent, don't ever give up. And that would be my advice. And people worry like what your relationship would be. But I have children that I carried and I had children or child that I didn't carry. And it's all just the same. So it's a means to an end, meaning that it's a period of time to get you to where you want to be And life is short. And so don't ever give up the possibilities of your dreams. Yeah. And there's probably a message here, like, don't try this at home. Like, you don't have to feel like you need to transfer your embryo into your surrogate. She's a well-trained physician. So funny. I think there's probably very few people that had that blessing, but yeah, for sure. (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. Well, let's talk about the future. So where have you seen the fertility industry go wrong? And what are you doing to make it right at Kind Body? Well, the next thing that has happened, I think, in our field is we've had people that have retired and transitioned out. So I think the mergers and acquisitions and all what that means has created a different framework for the business side of fertility doctors. And the jobs that are available are probably much different than in the past. So how does that look when there are very few 
graduating fellows in a lot of need around the world. I think the other piece is that the door going into an IVF lab was quite singular. It was for couples that were trying to get pregnant and were not. But today, that looks very different. We have people doing fertility preservation for cancer and medical needs, freezing eggs, freezing sperm, freezing embryos. There's the LGBTQI community that brings another need to the patient experience. And so I think that the field of fertility looks different in that way compared to years before. And then using technology to assess oocytes, sperm, embryos, artificial intelligence, and the whole cryo field, some call it cryo repository, others call it where our tissue is stored. What does that look like long-term? And then using, again, some of this automation to, there's some labs trying to be automated to do automatic ICSI without a person doing it. It's a machine, robotics, all of those things are coming. So it will be interesting to see what the world brings us. Amazing. Well, so I'm going to ask you to to pick your favorite baby. What technology are you most excited about? What are you working on that will help patients? I know her eyes are getting really big. She's like, Abby, don't make me do that. Wow. (laughs) Well, if we're talking in the lab, I think predicting the best embryo to choose, how to get there. I didn't even mention PGT, the genetic testing of the embryos in doing a biopsy or non-invasive PGT morphology, assessing the morphology and predicting which is the embryo that's going to be most likely to result in a healthy baby. So whether it's examining the oocyte, examining the sperm when they come together and the embryo as it develops over that week and then testing embryos, all of that, that lane there in the lab, I think everyone is excited about that, but I think there are going to be some pivotal things that come out that'll change how we do what we do. That's interesting. And I'm glad you picked that as your favorite. (laughs) But you're in the position, so you probably know way better than me. Well, so Angie, I have one last question before we conclude the podcast. And this is a question I asked every single guest. If you could re-script, change, reframe anything in the fertility industry, whether that's technology, how the patient feels, whatever you want to re-script, what would it be? What would you change? Today, I would try to make the fertility testing and treatment considered a disease, a problem, and that all would have access to being able to use what we've learned to help them have a child. And today we do not have that. Most people that have infertility or want to do fertility treatment have no way of accessing that care. And so if I could rescript it, I wouldn't make it an elective consideration in people's minds or a religious consideration in people's minds, like even with people that have treatment, I would love for people to understand that just like other things in the body doesn't always work perfectly and that we could rescript this to say, if you want fertility care, you should be able to have it. What do we like have to change? It's like, that seems so obvious to me. And I think a lot of our people who follow us, like, what do we literally have to change to make that a reality in America today? Legally, you would say that fertility treatment is just as billable 
at any insurance as a headache or cancer or appendicitis, that if someone comes in the ER and they have appendicitis, well, you don't say, well, you don't actually have benefits for your appendectomy, so we're not going to treat you. And certainly, I'm not suggesting that there's an acuity that's similar, but the mindset that this is a medical condition. And on the religious side, as an example, God did not mean for you not to be able to have a family or didn't mean for someone to have cancer. But there are ways and treatments that whatever is framed in your mind that you should be able to access being a parent if you need help. I agree. <laughs> well, Angie, Dr. Balzaros, thank you so, so much for coming thank on the podcast you. today. This has oh been an absolute gosh. joy. Thanks for, I don't think I, like, I just wanted to talk about you as a leader and I feel just so refreshed and inspired knowing all of these things about you, you that I didn't you. know before. So thank you. And I'm sure we'll talk soon. Thank you. It was so fun to reflect on all of these things in my life. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to The Future of Fertility. We hope you leave here feeling empowered about all of the exciting innovations taking place in the fertility space. If you liked today's episode, don't forget to click subscribe and be sure to check out Dear Infertility, our popular podcast slash advice column, where we chat with experts about all things fertility and fertility and pregnancy loss. To learn more and to join our free fertility support community, head to prescripted.com. Thank you.